You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, John. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Indian well, summer. Good. What's that? It's Indian summer here in Hoboken. I oh, assume. In you mean Native Western. American summer? I think yesterday, by the way, was was Columbus Day. Was it not? Yes, it was. And uh, uh, I woke up in the woods in the Hudson Highlands. I, I went on a two-day retreat, just uh-huh. hiking in the woods to try mm-hmm. to, you know, gather my thoughts. Yeah, well, you've got the kind of job where you get to do that. You get a lot of holidays and stuff, I guess. You get a whole summer off. You're you're kind of an academic, notwithstanding your background in journalism. Let me tell people about you in case you don't know. You're John Horgan, famous science journalist. You write uh, you have like a blog at Scientific American where you write contentious stuff that leads scientists to denounce you. You were well known for the book, The End of Science, The Undiscovered Mind, a number of books. Uh, I guess most recently your anti-war book. Is that it? No. Well, no. Then there's then there's the mind-body problem, which has yes. an accompanying, an, not only is available for for free on the internet if people go to the right place, but there's an accompanying series of podcasts on meaningoflife.tv, which is also, of course, the network on which this uh, will be seen in addition to being available on the Right Show podcast. That's right. Thanks for the plug. Um, is this going to be, where will this appear? Meaning of Life TV? It will, uh, unless we veer uh, into politics in some bizarre way and forget to talk about scientism and stuff, which was our plan. So it's it's kind of complicated. My show, The Right Show, some episodes, it's always in The Right Show podcast feed as an audio podcast, but some episodes as a, as a video matter are on meaningoflife.tv and some are on bloggingheads.tv, depending on whether they deal with the meaning of life or with random stuff. Politics. It's all entangled, Bob. It's the all entangled. Life, science, politics. Yeah. Really hard to keep them apart. No, that's the, and the roots run deep. And ultimately it's the deep state. Ultimately, this is an expression of the deep state. <laughs> so. Uh-oh. Okay. Bring um, on. Let's see. We're going to talk about scientism. There, there was a, and, and whatever else we wind up talking about, it could go anywhere. We've known each other a pretty long time, so you never know what'll, what'll break out here. And we've actually had our share of contentions over the years because you've been wrong about some things and it's been my duty to correct you and you don't always accept that gracefully. <laughs> well, you sometimes have veered toward uh, ideological certainty when it comes to uh, Darwin and Buddha, and I try to point out some of the uh, flaws in your thinking, and and you're always very gracious about uh, accepting that I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so science. There was an occasion recently, uh, and maybe you can set the stage for us for thinking about scientism, which I would define as kind of what, an exaggerated sense of the proper realm of authority of science? Or, you know, when science, when scientists start kind of intruding in certain areas where they may not, first of all, be welcome, like maybe in philosophy or other humanities, and secondly, and arguably may not, uh, you know, may exceed just the, the kind of, I don't know, epistemological bounds or something, they, they, they may actually have an exaggerated sense for 
uh, how much science can tell us. I, I mean, for me, the, uh, one good example is the Sam Harris book, The Moral Landscape, where the subtitle was something like, how science can determine human values. I, I forget the exact phrase, but there was determine in values in the, in the subtitle. I, I would call that, uh, you know. That's pretty classic scientism. Deriving, yeah. deriving ought from is. If you, you know, you grant that science is telling us how the world works, um, and then you draw ethical conclusions from that. Um, which I think even most scientists would say is a, uh, a very risky thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you want me to tell you like what this is latest? So why don't you set the stage? By the way, I just realized I forgot to tell people exactly what the academic part of your identity is. You're, you're at the Stevens Institute of Technology. Is it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Which, and which, which, which by the way, I, I, I right read somewhere. There. I read somewhere that students there have like really high incomes in the end. Right. Uh, they do well when they get out. It's a high return yeah. on investment, and the administration of the school would be thrilled to hear you mention that. I just thought I'd mention it. Because they all they wind mar- up making more money than you're making as a professor of what? <laughs> what? Of I am, I've never really known what my title is. Um, I, I'm, I think I'm called an assistant teaching professor because I, I don't have a PhD. I teach science writing. I teach a class called War and Science at it's really just about my book, The End of War. And I teach freshman humanities, which I really enjoy. And it, it's basically, I, I'm, it's a class about, you know, stuff that John Horgan is thinking about and wants you to think about also. I like teaching the freshmen because their minds are still fresh and unformed. And I, I can have a, I, I like to think I can have a real effect on them. Yeah, I taught a couple of freshman seminars at, Princeton and they're and it really is gratifying in exactly that way they're 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 open-minded which will not last forever that's right um, so uh so scientism so set the stage this was a controversy involving uh Jerry Coyne and Steven Pinker and an historian of science who wrote uh, a, a thing for nature the esteemed journal uh to as part of the commemoration of its 150th anniversary, right? Yeah. So um, Nathaniel Comfort is an historian of science at uh, Johns Hopkins, and he happens to be coming to my school to give a a talk tomorrow, October 16th, about um, the origin of life. He he was going to talk about uh, genetic determinism, uh, which he's written a lot about, but uh, I have somebody else who's going to be talking about that same topic in another month. So I asked him to focus on, on the origin of life, which, which he's also written about. So anyway, Comfort wrote this essay that's part of some anniversary for nature. I forget exactly what it is. I think but it's the 150th anniversary. Okay. And so they're, they're, um, they're nature was like the, you know, really, really super august. Yeah. Nature. The British, British equivalent of science. Yes, and I'd say nature maybe even has a little more prestige. It's it's older. It's, uh, it's older than science, but they're you know those are the two premier science journalists. Like that's where Watson and Crick journals. wrote their paper, I think, in Nature and so on. Yeah, yeah. So Comfort was asked to write a kind of big picture essay on where science is now, and he decided to write about uh, sort of are changing notions of self um, that science has given us over, over the centuries and how sometimes 
that can lead us to think or lead some scientists to say that they know who we really are. This is, I'm, I'm using my own terms, uh, now, but this is, this is basically what comfort is addressing. So he's first looking back, uh, at, uh, at Darwin theory of evolution by natural selection, and then bringing us up into the uh, 20th century, looking at, uh, genetics, the discovery of the double helix, and then all these things that have happened recently, uh, in, uh, immunology and developmental biology. And, and comfort is pointing out that science is constantly telling us it's, this is, this is what you really are. You know, you're, you're an organism that's shaped by natural selection. You are a self with an immune system that tries to distinguish between you and the rest of the world. Uh, you're a collection of, uh, of genes that are trying to pass themselves into the next generation. And comfort is pointing out that some scientists and some science lovers have had this tendency to think that science has really figured out who we are and uh, that it is, that it is, uh, it has a a definition of humanity that the rest of us should, should uh, agree on. Um, Yeah. Comfort. comfort, Let me just give you his definition of science because it's a little bit different than, uh, than the one I would use. He says, scientism is, says that science is the only way to understand the world and solve social problems. And as examples of this, he points out some of the more insidious byproducts of science, like social Darwinism, social Darwinism and eugenics, in which legitimate science has been turned into a kind of ideology, a, a, a political uh, platform for doing various things. That uh, that you know culminated in the 20th century in uh, the Nazi regime, which was kind of eugenics taken to its uh, to its extreme, and comfort is trying to distinguish between science, which is constantly telling us real things about our bodies and our about our relationship uh, with the rest of nature, and and comfort. Um, reveres science. I assume that's why he became a a science historian. He's just deploring this tendency to take some scientific theories and to use them for um, political ends and and in which they become really an ideology rather than than, uh, something more scientific. Yeah. So, yeah, he's doing a couple of things, it seems to me. I mean, I didn't think he was doing anything that was quite worth the intensity of denunciation that Jerry Coyne mustered. But then again, Jerry Coyne is, you know, is is a champion of intense denunciation, kind of regardless of the, the magnitude of the crime he's denouncing. Um, the uh, And that's what Steve Pinker picked up on. I mean, Steve often kind of retweets kind of looks at what Jerry Coyne is doing and, and tweets it and, and join. And then Jerry Coyne kind of ritually worships Steve Pinker. And, um, and, and that's what got comfort's attention, right? The Steve Pinker tweet, like, um, uh, and, and, and then, and then Jerry Coyne complains about how much time he spent talking about Steve Pinker tweet. Anyway, back to what comfort actually said. I mean, there, there, there were the first part that you alluded to, yeah, he, he got into how science reshapes our conception of self. I don't think he's really complaining about that because, for one thing, scientists, it's not really like when he says 
more recently, cell and molecular studies have relaxed the borders of the self. In other words, the conception of the self or like immunology, you know, uh, what does he say about that? Um, immunology redefined the self in terms of non-self. Well, there's, there's very few scientists who have actually had that thought, I would suspect. I mean, this is him saying one takeaway from science, you know, in the minds of some people, maybe to change their conception of self. A, I'm not sure <laughs> how much that actually has happened. But B, I don't think he's complaining about that. Uh, I guess what he's, you're right. I mean, let me read one more, one paragraph where I think he is complaining. Since the Enlightenment, we have tended to define human identity and worth in terms of the values of science itself, as if it alone could tell us who we are. That is an odd and blinkered notion. And then he gets into, this probably really drove Jerry Coyne nuts, because it starts lapsing into, you know, standard left-wing stuff here. It's like, in the face of colonialism, slavery, opioid epidemics, environmental degradation, climate change, the idea that Western science and technology are the only reliable sources of self-knowledge is no longer tenable. Uh, this isn't to lay all human miseries at science's feet, far from it. The problem is scientism. Defining the self only in biological terms tends to obscure other forms of identity, such as one's labor or social role. Maybe the answer to Huxley's question of questions isn't a number after all. Um, Okay, so uh, I we're going to have to define postmodernism too here. <clears throughs> oh, yeah, well, yeah, we don't have, as if we don't have enough on our hands. Well, just just hold on a second. So before we do that, so what he is he, he comfort is a postmodernist. I mean, that's what Coyne accuses him of being. I think, right? I don't know. I well, Steve's. I don't Coyne, know hardly anybody. I, I know a lot of people who I think are postmodernists, but I know only one person who proudly calls himself a postmodernist and it's an historian of science at Stevens named Jim McClellan. I'm not sure if uh, comfort thought of himself as a postmodernist, but I think he's, he's, his essay is, has a kind of postmodern assumption to it, which I would define as a kind of doubt and skepticism and uh, an historical awareness of how rapidly theories are generated and, and overturned. So it's kind of, uh, in, in Comfort's case, and I'd say this is true of me too, you, you love what science tells us about ourselves, but you don't see any statements of science as kind of the last word. You know that there's going to be this continued uh, yeah. revision in our understanding of ourselves and th- that we're always going to be somewhat mysterious to ourselves. And I, I think, and I, I don't see that as anything very uh, exceptional until you, you add that, which a lot of postmodernists do and which comfort also d- does in his essay that many of our ideas about ourselves and our ideas about our world are shaped by um, our cultural biases and even reflect uh, sort of power structures uh, vested interests in the culture of the scientists. And that's why comfort is bringing up the fact that most science has been done by white males of European descent rather than disabled female uh, people of color. So that that's kind of a, a standard uh, postmodern move as well. And again, um, I don't even see that as 
I, I, I see that as, uh, I mean, I guess it's political correctness to an extent, but I think it's, but I, I applaud it. I think science also could benefit from more diversity. I think you'd have a different kind of science if, uh, if science yeah. uh, it was more inclusive. And I would hope that Steve Pinker and Jerry Coyne would, uh, would agree with that as well. well. They certainly wouldn't argue that it should ever forever be in the province of white males. I don't think the, um, I, I think there's, I, I think they think that there's a version of postmodernism that is, is more of the, there is no such thing as truth. You know, uh, that I, I think they say, and I don't know to what extent this is a problem. When I read Steve's book, Enlightenment Now, and he went on and on, but kind of at, at least at the end about postmodernism, I was thinking, is this really such a problem? I don't know any of these. Who, you know, uh, I, I, people don't walk up to me and say there's no such thing as truth, and so we can't trust any of science's findings. But I think, I think that is the concern: is that uh, that there are postmodernists who want to uh, undermine the very foundations for talking as if we know anything. You know. Um, yeah, this this goes back to, among others, Thomas Kuhn, who, uh, although he disavowed it, he didn't like being called a, a postmodernist. He's sort of a godfather of postmodernism, at least as it's applied to, uh, as it, at least as it's applied to science. Because postmodernism also there are versions of it in philosophy and and, uh, and literature, but um, yeah, that kind of extreme skepticism where you, you don't believe in the atomic theory of matter. You right. don't believe in the genetic code. You don't believe in the, uh, in, uh, natural evolution by natural selection. I haven't really encountered it. I just mentioned this really good friend of mine, Jim McClellan, this historian of science, uh, at Stevens, who, uh, was Kuhn's student at Princeton back in, in the early seventies. And he, he's really still, a Kuhnian after all these years. And like Kuhn, uh, my friend Jim thinks that uh, science uh, is our most powerful way of knowing the world. Mm -hmm. And it has all these extraordinary achievements. But Jim says that we should never think that science has given us absolute truth. Uh, Jim likes to call scientific theories stories that are constantly, you know, that this is the best story we can put forward now, but it, it will surely be replaced by other stories in the future. The idea is that science never converges on a true picture of the world. And I actually think that's bullshit. I think that science gets a lot of things right once and for all, but there are other areas where science is constantly spinning its wheels and you can ask whether it will ever really get a grasp of what it's trying to understand. And I think the most obvious example of that is us, the science of human nature, the science of the mind and brain um, of humanity. It, it does not get the same kind of attraction that physics gets when it's trying to understand elementary. Yeah. Yeah. But there are things that I think we can say with tremendous confidence at this point, we can say, for example, that life um, that uh, natural selection uh, is an extremely important force. <laughs> that 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 which animals did the best job of getting which genes were most conducive to their own replication has a whole whole lot to do with uh, what why organisms are the way they are 
including human beings. And I think we can go further and say with a very high degree of confidence. I mean, I, I agree that in, in a certain strict sense, you can never say anything with 100.000 forever zeros percent confidence. But I think there are things we can say with 99.9% confidence. Oh, I think there are things we can say with 100% confidence. I, I once had a conversation well, with my friend Jim where he said, um, you know, we we're arguing back and forth about whether there's there such a thing as an absolute truth. And I and uh, he said, give me a single example of an absolute truth. And I said, the earth is round and not flat. And he said, the earth isn't round. It's an oblate spheroid. And I said, okay. The earth is sure an oblate spheroid. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, but, but, but strictly speaking, your brain could be in a vat and it could be a simulation and there could be no earth. Right. So there's at least a point zero one percent chance of that. That's all I mean. There, there yeah. is, there is. I mean, that's not all I mean, but it's one thing I mean is that a certain amount of epistemological uh, doubt is always in order. Now, with natural selection, see, but I think what drives people like Steve Pinker crazy, and, and I'm, I, I'm to some extent with him on this, is uh, there are people who say i mean he's you know he's of course an evolutionary psychologist i've written sympathetically about evolutionary psychology and was doing so early on you know we both believe that uh there are at least some psychological differences between uh men and women i would say especially in the realm of like sexual slash romantic behavior and so on sexual psychology uh, including, you know, things, you know, somewhat subtle things like the exact nature of jealousy and so on. We think there's very good reason to believe that there are different, these are average differences, of course. There are always going to be individuals who don't conform, but that there are average differences that we have a, a pretty high degree of confidence, have at least some basis um, in the genes. And there are people who who want to deny that there are any such differences at all and um, I think that's I, I, I think they're just not not really uh, seriously grappling with the evidence. You know, the funny thing is that I'm accused of scientism by some philosopher friends I know because I, um, you know, I accept that we are organisms, that humans are organisms shaped by natural selection. I think evolutionary psychology has interesting things to say about our behavior and even about possible distinctions between um, males and, and uh, females. I, I recently tried to get uh, a philosopher in my department to read Robert Trivers' paper on um, the evolution of reciprocal altruism because I said that, you know, if you're a philosopher of morality, mm-hmm. you should know about this. Even if you disagree with it, you should know what you're disagreeing with if you're, you know, trying to completely uh, disavow anything that biology has to contribute to, uh, to moral philosophy. But then, you know, I guess because I'm a contrarian, I, you know, when I'm talking to somebody like you or when I'm talking to Robert Trivers, I'd like to point out that it's really hard to distinguish between biology and environment when it comes to even something like sexual behavior. Uh, women are, you know, so the evolutionary psychologists say that women are instinctively uh, more coy sexually than uh, I, I'm than, not sure many would be 
uh, would put it quite that way. But anyway, go ahead. Well, then males that, 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 that in certain them. ways that in certain ways uh, women tend to be uh, more discerning about sexual partners they're attracted to. I mean, for example, men right. are more aroused by the mere sight, by sheerly visual cues with having no knowledge about the actual person and requiring none to get aroused, you know, um, you know, and so this, this seems to, uh, I mean, among the data that, that they're trying to explain here is that why is it that in all cultures where there's pornography, pornography uh, in the sense of just, you know, visual stuff that arouses people, why is it overwhelmingly a male thing? Now it could be cultural. That's not impossible in principle. It's not like they're just saying, well, if it's in all cultures, it must be in their genes. There's a lot more argument and evidence. And, and that's what people don't understand because they don't they don't want to get into the argument. They don't want to really grapple. There are so all, all I'd like to do is point out that that a young girl, first of all, is being told to watch out for boys. They're going to take advantage of you. She learns early on that there are consequences for her sexuality uh that boys don't have uh so they're they're constantly there's this the this environmental reinforcement of certain norms of behavior that make it hard to disentangle the relative contributions of biology absolutely it's a very hard problem that's that's all i'm saying so um you know i i want to go back to scientism And and of course culture can have a huge influence on the extent to which this is expresses itself. In fact, it's not impossible in principle to get it to not express itself at all. Right. Right. It's just that it's just that you would, the point is that you would have to do something to, 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 uh, to, to make, to completely neutralize the expression of it because that, uh, because uh, all other things being equal, in the in the absence of of of, of kind of countervailing cultural forces and so on and and look I think this is useful information uh, in principle I do too uh, what bothered me about evolutionary psychology was the way that it became some of the some of the practitioners and I, you know I thought you had a little bit of this a while ago now I deny it whatever you're going to say now that you're a Buddhist uh, I, I think you've you've transcended this kind of behavior but it, it, there's an ideological there was an ideological fervor to evolutionary psychology in the 1990s uh, that bothered me I thought there was a kind of overreaching that was characteristic of scientism but let me before you respond to that let me let me just say something about scientism in general. Um, I think the most extreme period of scientism was actually in the 1980s and 1990s when, you know, I was just starting in, in uh, science journalism. I was, I was covering a lot of different fields, but I was also covering physics. And there was this extraordinary idea in the air that came from Stephen uh, Hawking, Stephen Weinberg, and, and some other famous physicists, that they were going to figure the world out. They were going to tell us how the universe came into being, why the universe is this way rather than some other way, how, how it was that a universe uh, emerged that allowed for our existence. Uh, Hawking and Weinberg and others were talking about a, a theory of everything, a unified theory of physics that would answer all these ancient questions that really religion was invented uh, to answer. And at the same time, you had Richard Dawkins and Blind Watchmaker 
saying that the problem of life has basically been solved. It was solved by Darwin's uh, theory of natural selection. You had Francis Crick talking about the possibility, this was the late 80s and early 90s, of consciousness, which is kind of like the enigma at the heart of the mystery of existence. Consciousness could be solved scientifically. So there was this tremendous hubris and confidence in scientists mm-hmm. in science that they could figure everything out. And to me, that's kind of the essence of science, uh, of scientism. And by the way, of course, all these people were atheists. Stephen Hawking was a hardcore atheist, hated religion. So uh, did yeah. Richard Dawkins, oh. and Stephen Weinberg. And I think that, that this idea that science is going to crush all these nonsensical, superstitious ways that we've had uh, uh that we've had in the past of knowing the world. I think that's really, um, that's also part of the essence of science. Okay. And, you know, you mentioned before, uh, Sam Harris, of course, uh, a hardcore atheist. His first book was, uh, the end of faith. I I think of Lawrence Krauss, the, uh, you know, the, the physicist. Telling us that now we know why there is something rather than nothing. He has, he has put to bed this ancient, uh, philosophical conundrum, which was just, complete 100 percent bullshit i mean i'm sorry and 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 i think at some level he knew it i i i don't know but um, my my phone's just starting to ring is that was that lawrence krauss (laughs) lawrence i i thought i just muted the uh oh let me go turn off my phone no i want to hear who's calling now leave it on I want to it's, hear who's calling. It's just spam. Hello, Chip. This is Lawrence. <laughs> oh, no one knows that your 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 nickname was Long Chip. I was going to say, why would Lawrence Krauss worry about what I think? But then I, I remembered I did write that nasty thing about him after I thought he treated you badly in that public event. Oh, yeah. Now it's coming out that I actually have an agenda with Lawrence Krauss. I do. Um, I do uh, have an agenda with him. <laughs> well, anyway, he's... But He's anyway, we can link to that. We can link to that. There was this. It was an interesting conversation between me and him uh, that was in public. And what annoyed me about it is like we had paid him a big honorarium uh, to come and talk, and I just thought he was like stonewalling. He just wasn't. He just he had his like new atheist fan people in the crowd, and he was just like playing to the crowd. And I had actual serious questions I wanted to ask him, and and so I got kind of annoyed. But but that okay so. I think this is an opportunity to do a kind of varieties of scientism thing, because you've mentioned several things. Let me, first of all, plead guilty to the charge of evangelicism. I mean, in my, my 1994 book on evolutionary psychology, The Moral Animal, had a certain evangelical air. It was arguing that we can understand a lot about human nature through this paradigm, which I still believe, so I'm not mm-hmm. really apologizing for it but it yeah, is me too i uh, me too it, not it, as much it, as you you but. know it, it was it was kind of um evangelical now i will say that one variety of uh of scientism which you alluded to earlier when you talked about inferring is or ought from is that surfaces with Psych all the time uh you know when time magazine and in those days uh, it was a great break for my, that book to be excerpted on the cover of Time Magazine, back when Time Magazine was Time Magazine. And um, and, and what it said on the cover was it had a big uh, wedding ring, and, 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 it said, and, the, and it said, infidelity, it may be in our genes, uh, which was, 
I was a little ambivalent about. That was much more simple sounding than anything I actually said in the book or the excerpt. Uh, and I thought the more interesting and subtle part was how subtly uh, our uh, psychology works in these realms and, 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 and everything. But anyway, I have no doubt that there are people somewhere in America, guys who looked at that cover and thought, well, if it's in our genes, I'll cheat on my <laughs> wife. Right. And, right. and that, that is a danger. Uh, 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 I mean, there's the naturalistic fallacy version of it. If it's natural, it must be good. And then there's the, simplistic the second version which is the simplistic idea that well if it's in any sense in our genes there's no way to control it which is also wrong but you also mentioned some other things that i think uh represent maybe other varieties of scientism so theories of everything uh, yeah and, i mean argue, uh, at least arguably physics. they do can it let me let me just point out that scientism not to overwhelm people with isms here but scientism is very closely associated with atheism, which I, you know, I just pointed out, uh, but also with um, reductionism and materialism. And, you know, reductionism is kind of what science does. You try to explain a lot of different things with one thing. You have a simple explanation for, for lots well, of well, there is a There is a pejorative usage of the term reductionist to mean – too simple, simplistic, but there's right. also the kind of more formal philosophical sense in which some scientists would say, yeah, that's what I do. I try to reduce phenomena to, to kind of in an explanatory way to simpler ex, you know, to, you know, I, I try to reduce the uh, chemistry to physics, right? I, right. I, I tried and so on. And another, another, uh, ism is, uh, materialism, the assumption that, that reality basically consists of matter. That's the foundation of everything. And then you get this odd stuff that uh, happens as a result of certain kinds of matter, like life and uh, consciousness. But you're only going to explain life and consciousness by looking at the under the material underpinnings. That, that's what, uh, what materialists uh, assume. And I think that the, the height of... You know, I, I realize looking back at my advanced age now at, at over, you know, the last few decades that I became a science writer um, when all those isms were at their peak, scientism, atheism, uh, at least scientific atheism, materialism and reductionism. And scientists were just so full of themselves and and rightfully so The you know, the first half of the 20th century had seen all these extraordinary accomplishments in uh, in the physical and biological sciences and so i think it was reasonable for scientists to think that they can figure all this shit out they can really understand the world not just the physical realm but biology and and the human mind uh once and for all and looking and i actually bought into that i i, I originally thought that this might happen and when I started thinking about the end of science, that this book that I wrote came out in 1996, it was the idea was that maybe scientists really are going to figure everything out. But then I quickly realized that 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 there is very little chance of that happening. But I did take the idea of of what you might call scientific omniscience seriously. I just wrote a piece looking back on that period, in which. Um, I call it the delusion of scientific omniscience in which I, I 
I think that we never should have taken that idea seriously. There are always really good reasons to disbelieve the claim that there would be a theory of everything in, uh, in physics or in biology. And science, I think, will never get back to that kind of hubris and arrogance and certainty. There is still scientism, but it's not nearly as pervasive as it was a couple of, uh, a couple of decades ago because science, I'd say, has been humbled over the last few decades. Well, in uh, some ways, it's been humbled by science. I, I mean, yes. um, it, it's, I mean, let me say, first of all, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, you know, when I said, uh, I think Lawrence Krauss at some level knew um, that what he was saying was, was uh, bullshit. I shouldn't say that. I, I, and I actually basically don't believe it. I mean, I think people are very good at convincing themselves that, that whatever they're saying is, is is true um uh, and 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 maybe we'll have time to get into what exactly i consider ridiculous about his argument his claim that he had he could now tell us why there's something right or that physics could now tell us why there's something rather than nothing anyway that's just a little uh a little mea culpa the the um but but i, I mean first of all what i still believe is that science is going to tell us more and more for some time to come about for example human psychology i think our understanding will grow but I think it is also pointing to some things that may be fundamental limits. And one of them, uh, you mentioned materialism. I think uh, quantum physics, uh, among other things, and physics in general, is raising doubts about the word materialism, you know, because increasingly it's it's looking like at, at some kind of foundational level. Of sub, you know, as, once you get to the level of subatomic particles, it's like we don't really have a, an easy way to conceptualize what the actual nature of reality is. I, I had a conversation uh, with this about this with the philosopher Gideon Rosen that we can link to. But um, so there's that. There's materialism, and then you mentioned consciousness. And I think, although I think we'll know more and more about human psychology, it may well be that the mind-body problem, per se, understanding why there is subjective experience and also like what exactly is the interface like between what we think of as the material world and subjective experience and consciousness that may, that may, I'm not sure, but it may remain forever beyond our capacity to understand. And and I think, I think there's a clearer understanding of those two things than there was maybe 20 years ago. I mean, I don't know when Dan Dennett's book out uh, came out, Consciousness Explained. Like 80, oh, 1990s. Early 90s maybe yeah. or something. But but for a while, you know, people were like, oh, cool. And I think now there aren't, I think the philosophical tide has turned against him. I personally think rightly so. I personally oh, think, absolutely. I, mean, I, I personally think what he's doing is actually arguing that consciousness doesn't exist, although he gets upset when you accuse him of really thinking that. Um, he's, he's basically saying, I, I tried, I really tried hard to understand exactly what Dennett was saying. I, and I wrote a blog post about it. He's basically saying that consciousness is so trivial when it comes to our biological functioning and behavior that it might as well not exist. Okay. But, but here's the point. Here is one of the points. It may indeed be that consciousness is functionally redundant, more than trivial, just that it doesn't do anything. I mean, that's one model of consciousness is that it's epiphenomenal and that its relation to my physical brain is like the relation 
of the shadow of my hand to my hand. In other words, my hand influences the shadow. The shadow doesn't influence my hand. Maybe consciousness is like a shadow. Fine. But if that's the case, that only deepens the mystery because remember, consciousness is the reason life has meaning, at least in my view. The fact that it's like something to be alive, we can experience pleasure or pain. That's what gives the world moral stakes. So if what gives the world moral meaning is something that functionally is superfluous, that didn't have to be here, I mean, that gives rise to all kinds of interesting speculations, including probably some theistic ones that Dan wouldn't like, right? I mean, in other words, if the thing that gives life meaning didn't have to be here, um, and David Chalmers has kind of metaphorically said uh, God didn't have to put consciousness into the world. Now, he doesn't mean God, God, but, 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 the God language. in the Einstein sense. What's that? God in the Einstein sense, just sort of, you know. Yeah, well, just, in the, just, in the, just, just that whatever is responsible for the universe and the nature of the universe, if it didn't have to include consciousness in order for the universe to function as it functions and even for us to function as we function, then that's kind of mind-blowing. Like, why is it here then? Um, yeah. Okay, let, me, let me just uh, sort of riff on what you just said. I think, I think we're in agreement on um, well, first of all, I, I don't I don't think that consciousness is a solvable problem. I guess that makes me a uh, mysterian. Uh, I think that we might find physical processes that are correlated with certain states of consciousness. This is what Francis Crick wanted to do back in the 1990s, and his acolyte uh, Christoph Koch uh, is still trying to do something like that. Uh, but that model, that materialist model of consciousness isn't that popular right now. There are all these competing theories that are not strictly materialist. In fact, uh, Koch himself has supported something called integrated information theory, which says that the fundamental stuff of existence is information, which is kind of this dualistic substance that uh, incorporates a little bit of mind and a little bit of uh, matter. So what's extraordinary uh, about what's happened to science over the last couple of decades and moving away from the period of scientism is that I think there's a recognition that some problems might be impossible to solve. It doesn't mean we should stop trying, but I think we might have to accept that there are lots of different answers, lots of different possible answers to some questions like, like the mind body problem. This is a theme of my, of my most recent book, the mind body problem, which is why I called it mind body problems. Oh, right. I got the title wrong, didn't I? Yeah, it's mind-body problems. Mind-body problems because uh, I think that, in a way, choosing a solution to the mind-body problem is like coming up with a personal identity. It's something that reflects our our, um, aspirations and our fears, our life experiences. And what's interesting in science is that there seem to be some of these deep questions – like what you know? What's going on with quantum mechanics? What does quantum quantum mechanics really uh, mean? Where you have all these different possibilities, all these different interpretations of quantum mechanics, uh, the many worlds theory, uh, the you know the old Copenhagen interpretation, the Bohmian pilot wave um, interpretation, and physicists and philosophers are passionate about different interpretations, but there's no way of empirically determining which one is correct. So you're left with these subjective judgments that lead you to, to prefer one over the other. 
I think that's true with, with uh, theories of consciousness as well. And, and more broadly uh, responses to the, to the mind body problem. I just wrote a post on this too. I'm, I, I'm more and more gravitating toward a position that's sometimes called scientific uh, pluralism, which says that there might not be a single absolute definitive true answer to some, to some of these really deep questions that we have. There might be lots of answers and, and uh, you pick the one that suits you best. And that's going to be unsatisfying for, you know, for the true believers in science who thought that there had to be convergence on one correct way of seeing the world. But I think that this pluralism just reflects uh, the limits of science and the richness and complexity of, uh, of the world. Yeah. And I think, and I want to underscore that science itself has, has done the service of, uh, of kind of emphasizing its own possible limits. Yeah, uh, I, I give science credit for that. And, you know, certainly in the realm of uh, kind of subatomic physics. Now, we, you know, we may, you know, we may learn more that will clarify the, 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 the foundational level of reality. But right now it's looking like the, more, the deeper we go, in a certain sense, the less sense it makes. Listen, I, uh, I, if you would allow me to brag a little bit, um, I'm, I'm, I, afraid, I'm afraid we've got to go. I'm afraid time, our time's up. <laughs> I, I, I've done something kind of newsworthy recently, so I, and I'm just going to tell the uh, Blogging Heads audience about it. Uh, I already told uh, readers of my blog about it uh, for Scientific American. Um, in 2002, I made a bet with Michio oh, yeah. Kaku. Oh, yeah. best-selling, best-selling author and uh, physicist Michio Kaku, uh, who often sort of presents himself as a major player in string theory, even though he's not really, to be honest. But he's a great popularizer. Uh, and we had a bet over whether there would be a Nobel Prize uh, for work related to string theory or any other kind of unified theory of physics by 2020. Um, and, uh, and by the way, a unified theory of physics is something that explains uh, all the particles and all the forces of nature in one tidy package. Now you've got a situation where you've got quantum field theory, which explains electromagnetism and the nuclear forces, and you've got general relativity, which explains gravity. And those just don't fit together. So physicists have been trying, since Einstein, have been trying to come up with a unified theory to explain all the forces in, uh, in one tidy package. String theory was the major candidate, but from the start, string theory was postulating these phenomena at scales that were much too small ever to be accessed directly by any experiment. So that led me to be a string theorist, uh, string theory skeptic from the very start. Kaku and lots of other people are very enthusiastic about string theory. So we, we put up some serious money, $1,000 each, under the auspices of something called the Long Bet Foundation. His, Kaku's last chance to win the bet was this fall. This is the last prize for physics uh-huh. given before 2020. And uh, needless to say, string theory nor any other uh, unified theory won a bet. And... Um, I mean, as I said, I thought the writing was on the wall 
back in the uh, 1990s that string theory would be a dead end. Um, and I don't know if this, I don't know what's going to happen with the quest for a unified theory, but I would assume because of some of these problems with empirical evidence that all the unified theories have, that there just isn't going to be as much interest in it. And, Does and Kaku are, acknowledge that you won the bet? He has not yet. I wrote him, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure he's aware of it because the piece that I wrote for Scientific American went went viral. Um, yeah, well, partly I, I thought your tweet about it was um, – I don't want to say misleading, but when you when – you, the tweet alluded to, thanks to so-and-so for congrat- – it was the day the Nobel Prizes had come out, and, and your tweet was something like, thanks to so-and-so for congratulating me on my Nobel win – yeah, I'd click on that link. <laughs> I thought you had won the Nobel Prize. It's very clever. <laughs> oh, come on! That's you know a little bit of uh, a little bit of grandiosity there. Yeah, just, no, that was just, good marketing. The um, just and just. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I actually there's there's a tape somewhere of me interviewing Michio Kaku like almost twenty years ago. Actually, when you know when Meaning of Life TV first started, it was actually it was like. Uh, it was 20 years ago that I started, but you know, before modern, before you could even do this, like tape a video conversation remotely. So I actually went around with cameras interviewing people and, and those interviews are still available, but I never got the one of Michio Kaku edited. And I, but I, what I remember was he got really kind of irate because I seemed to be skeptical of his. That I think what we were talking about was many worlds, the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics, which he was accepting. And I was and I was like, so you think that like right now in this room, there's also dinosaurs like or something <laughs> like that it was something like that. And 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 he said, yes. And, and I'm and I and he sensed my skepticism and, and maybe I don't know. But anyway, well, so, he's a classic gee whiz, a gee whiz science writer who just loves theories that have spectacular implications, which is true of string theory, which well, is true you know, of which the many I think is kind of fine. I mean, I, to get people excited about the philosophical possibilities of physics, because all of the, I mean, it's true that the quantum physics has driven people to the point where they, uh, you know, really smart people are entertaining theories that sound crazy, right? I mean, like many worlds sounds crazy. Uh, and and yet, it's almost like there's no there's no non mind blowing interpretation of quantum physics, and and that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. I but so just going back, I'm looking for some way to sort of wrap wrap things up on a uh, on a really uh, on a, in a with a, a note of grandiosity and a grand uh, unified theory of of scientism. It, it's I think we're we're entering. Uh, not an age of doubt, but uh, a period when science is going to go through some very serious self-questioning. And I think that's a good thing. It's the opposite of scientism. I, I've always uh, preached that science, science needs more modesty and humility. And there's some scientists who have plenty of that. But the ones with the, the platform, unfortunately, tend to be tend toward arrogance. But I think that given the replication crisis, for example, you know, this social is social psychology in particular. Well, but it's, it's, it's throughout science, actually, uh, you know, the acknowledgement that, or this recognition that 
the scientific literature is rotten and that more than half of the claims, and this has actually been measured, uh, that are made in peer-reviewed journals turn out not to be corroborated. And yes, it's, it's the biggest problem in the fields with the most at stake financially. So that's, that's, uh, that's biomedicine. Well, but, but, not uh, only, but also with, you might say, ideological implications or social, you know, there are people who go into certain fields because they do have, uh, you know, and, and this isn't a bad, you know, I, I don't, I don't indict them for this. I mean, we all have our views about what's wrong with society and how it might be fixed. And there are people who go into fields like social psychology with particular ideas about how easily things could be fixed. And that can influence the kinds of experiments they do and whether, whether there are enough psychologists who disagree with them, uh, ideologically to be motivated to try to uh, overturn their findings. I mean, that happens too. There's like, in, in a way, this brings us back to postmodernism because, except it's just a postmodernism light. It's like, it's like the fact that human motivation, human nature in various ways can corrupt science. I mean, in principle, what science is supposed to do is overcome the problem of human blindness because you can put your theory out there but so long as it's uh, stated in a way that it's testable, right, then, then even if you are blinded by your own commitment to the theory, other people will come and do these experiments that ultimately disprove your hypothesis. And, and, and so, in a way, science does take into account the problem of human nature. But what we're learning now is that in various fields, it doesn't work very efficiently to overcome that problem. And there are various corrupting influences, including, as you mentioned, just money, like, like pharmacological research. Uh, right. Psychiatry is, I think, one of the uh, most cartoonishly uh, apt examples of, uh, of where postmodernism is, uh, is, is right on. Uh, I mean, you can, you can sort of, the crude version of postmodernism is what journalists say all the time, which is follow the money. If you're trying to understand why somebody is saying something, um, try to look at whether they have ulterior financial motives for saying that. And you cannot understand modern psychiatry and especially the huge increase in prescriptions for uh, drugs for various psychiatric uh, disorders without looking at the, uh, the influence of the, the, of, uh, the, the pharmacological uh, companies behind them. It's great so, that journalists say follow the money, but they should also be saying follow the journalists. Because the fact is that journalism, science journalism is itself. And again, look, I, you know, came up as a journalist. I've, I've been guilty of this myself. But the fact is that the tendency of journalism to just, uh, you know, grasp at and highlight the most sensational seeming finding, that is a corrupting influence in itself. I think some scientists work with a press release, maybe not consciously in mind, but, you know, as you know, if you're a scientist who can get a story about your stuff on the front page of the New York Times, that's going to be super good for your career, at least in the short run. And your university is going to love you and you're going right. to be more likely to get grants. Yeah. And and I think in the realm, you know, with social psychology, I think that's a, that's, uh, that's a factor. And, um, you know, and it gets back to the fact that journalists 
the business model they have to work in, which yeah. is that it, the most clicks wins. And it's always, there's always been some version of this back before the internet. It was like, you want your story on the front page. Now it's, you want the most traffic, but, um, you know, it's like turtles all the way down. I don't know where the problem ends. It's like you just keep tracing the motivational biases back, like from the scientists to the journalists, to the people who read the stories and either click or don't click. The problem is human nature. Well, I, yeah, and evolutionary psychology, I, I guess, can Wait help us understand our 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 innate tendencies to deceive others and and yeah, to deceive yeah, yeah, yeah. ourselves for self interest. Uh, I just want to point out that I I like to think. I've been a, a sort of a, a, a little tiny counterforce in this cycle have, of, uh, of hype. But, uh, you know, so I, I, I think I went into science journalism because I wanted to celebrate science and I guess I wanted to market it and tell people about all the cool stuff scientists were discovering. And then I pretty quickly became jaded and realized that there was this big gap between the hype and the marketing and the reality of science. And so I took it upon myself to become a debunker, but it's, it's not easy. I can tell you. And it's, it's not, it's not a way to write a bunch of bestsellers to, to be saying, Oh, that, you know, that, that stuff well, that you read about in that other book, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of uh, nonsense. There's a, niche. You, you, there's a kind of attention you can get. What it isn't is a way for you to, to have all scientists love you. And you can attest to that, right? Yeah, I've got I've got a few fans, <laughs> yeah. but they tend to be scientists who are saying the same kinds of things that. And uh, you know, and I should I say, I mean, I've I've accused you of uh, going overboard in your, uh, shall we say, doubt or skepticism. And we've had, in fact, we didn't even have time to get to the whole uh, Napoleon Shagnon thing, did we? Uh, maybe it's not too late. I, I don't know. But anyway, what I want to say is. Uh, you know, I've accused you in person of like having the worldview that everyone is full of shit, except for the people who say everyone is full of shit, which conveniently is John Horgan. Right? <laughs> no, I, I, I think, I think I'm a, pretty, no, no, I want to say it's a productive worldview. I mean, <laughs> okay. given the, given, given the number of people we have, whose job seems to be to lap up uncritically the latest claim by anyone with a PhD who has a job at a university. It's it's good, even if I think you sometimes go overboard, it's good to have people like you who view universal skepticism as their mission. Well, well thanks for that. I My assumption is, and I think it's borne out by history, is that humans are dangerous when they're filled with servitude. Uh, it leads to self-righteousness, and it can lead to actual bad things happening in the world, to genocide and wars and, and uh, terrible oppression. Uh, and uh, or just to you know, unpleasant dogmatism and shutting down of alternative ways of of uh, of seeing the world. I, I can assure you, Bob, and I, I hope you realize this, knowing me for all this time, that I am filled with self doubt. Uh, and and I rightly think so, I would add. <laughs> good one. And I try to, I try to infect other people. I, I try to do this with my with my freshman students. Mm. I don't see my, I'm not trying to tell them what to think. I'm try, t- trying to get them to doubt whatever they think, yeah. whatever they believe. Um, and to doubt all authority figures, including their, their uh, grizzled old professor. Good. I would encourage that last thing in particular, skepticism <laughs> of you. Um, okay. Well, we've covered a lot. It's been what, it's been about an hour, hasn't it? Yeah. So maybe we should call it a day, I think. I mean, 
uh, we didn't have a, a chance to really drill down and <clears throat> and ask, you know, and and get try to get super clear on what is and isn't scientism. It is 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 saying consciousness ex, is explained scientism. We also didn't have time to get into this thing that you mentioned, Steven Weinberg. This thing he did, where he said, "We more, the more we learn about the universe, the more we realize how pointless it is." In other words, saying that scientists has kind of science has kind of discovered that there's no larger purpose. I thought that was kind of going uh, in a certain sense. I thought that was simplistic, but well, I think it's I think it's true. Uh, well, no, I, but it isn't. It isn't. I mean, exactly. A good example is what I was just saying. I think we have a clearer sense for how mysterious consciousness is now. And given the fact that it is what gives life meaning, this is a, I think science has actually clarified the mysteriousness of, of consciousness by helping us see more precisely the correlates between brain activity and consciousness. That in turn led to this naive, uh, I think, conclusion of Dan Dennis that, well, it's explained. And then you realize that the wait, no, even if you assume the precise correlates, that doesn't explain the fundamental question. Um, I, and, and that deepens the sense of mystery, which I think, and I think if that works in any way relative to the question of purpose, uh, it should lead you um, to entertain the possibility of purpose. Yeah, it's funny. You, I, I, you know, you're more open to ideas of God and sort of uh, some kind of ultimate purpose than I am. Um, I'm, I guess I'm more of an existentialist than you are. I, I, I do. I think I agree with Steve Weinberg. I think that science has helped to demolish, uh, helped to finish off the work that philosophers like Nietzsche started in the 19th century. It's helped to demolish the idea that, that there is a God, that there's any overarching purpose uh, to existence, but that leaves us free. How has it done that? But that leaves us free to. But wait, I don't even understand what you're saying. It's like, it's like what what specifically has science established that? that, And and I'm not, you know, let me let me emphasize. I'm talking about the possibility of purpose in various senses, some of which have nothing to do with any kind of established religion. I mean, for example, the hypothesis that we're in a simulation. If that's true, well, then there's a purpose. Then there's somebody who built this thing. Even if it's only for their own entertainment, that's a purpose, right? So I'm just talking about purpose in the broadest sense, and I'm asking, how has science told us that this universe has no purpose? It can't tell us. No, it can't. Exactly. It can't tell us. But so it leaves us free to imagine any kind of purpose and meaning that we like. And this gets back to my point about pluralism. If you want, if if you were looking for science to confirm. Uh, I don't know, the sense of purpose that you get from the Judaism and Christianity and Islam, that there's this divine force that created us and it wants certain things of, from us. And if we do certain things, then we will be rewarded. That's, that's gone. I think for any, any, anybody with uh, any kind of intellectual I don't think it's gone honesty. I don't think it's gone in a generic sense. I, I think well, I think that that the social sciences and history and archaeology and everything uh, and just our awareness that there's all these different religious traditions uh, strengthen the argument that wait a second, there's a way to explain what uh, th- th- there's reason to doubt. The, the version of the story that religions have traditionally 
presented of themselves. Like, okay, there was this one guy and the only way to explain what happened and all this mirror, you know, whether it's the Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, there were all these mirror, you know, I think miracles and so on. I think everything we know now about history and the way stories get told and the way they change in the telling and everything. And some of this comes from science in the okay, you're, I, you're, I think cast doubt on those specific stories. But, 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 but what I was saying was. I've read your books, Bob. I, I, I know what, I know what your idea of what you mean by, by purpose. And I, I, I'm just saying, I, yeah, I but don't you, agree with it, and I, I, I agree no, with it. No, it isn't Weinberg. just that you don't agree. You just asserted that science is has told us there's no larger purpose. You, I think science has made it very hard to believe any of the traditional stories that we we have had uh, about our purpose, our reason for being well, here. This I think is it's whole, done that by by show by expanding the universe uh immensely and showing that the earth is just this little tiny speck of dust around a nondescript star um by showing that uh you know we weren't created by uh by god a few thousand years ago that we're descended well, from animals not in a hands-on yeah not in a hands-on way that yeah. there's this enormous contingent so by i think what what weinberg was saying and what i've taken away from science is that there's this randomness to our existence. There's a randomness to the creation of the universe. There's a randomness to the creation of life and to our emergence, um, you know, a couple hundred we, thousand years ago. We should, and even have a co- whole, we should have a whole conversation about purpose. Yeah. But, uh, but as I because, said, because I see you're that wrong it, and it's important that you understand that, but it's clear <laughs> that you're not going to come to understand it within the next 90 seconds. I, I see it as, uh, as liberating what I'm talking about. And I don't think it, in a fine. kind of meta way, in a kind of meta way, it's consistent with, with what you're saying. You're entitled to have your own view. Oh, of, I appreciate uh, that. Thank you. Uh, I've been of, waiting uh, all my life for that. Permission. Of there being some kind of divine purpose to uh, existence, but there's no way of knowing if you're right. There's no, no way. Of, of course there's if- not. Of course there's not. I just think it's a logical matter. Uh, again, this is just a conversation. This is a conversation unto itself, but I think it's a logical matter the idea that science has tending to extinguish the prospect for purpose is uh, a case that hasn't been made. And B, I think in some ways, uh, things that we now understand more clearly are actually suggestive of larger purpose in at least some sense, which, by the way, doesn't even mean the purpose would be inspiring, could be depressing, could be, uh, you know, it, it, I, I'm not even I'm not even I, I do think there are uh you know, uplifting themes in the uh, arguments I would see for the possibility of purpose. But I'm not, I want to be clear. I'm not, I'm not, you know, um, trying to sell right now any particular story. I just think you can actually draw on science um, and argue that in some ways, uh, some aspects of science uh, strengthen what is, of course, inherently a speculative argument for purpose of course let me try to let me try to be conciliatory before we sign off on this the way that i thought you know i wrote about this in uh, rational mysticism how if at all does science intersect with these spiritual inter- intuitions that we have in, in certain uh states i think that science has demonstrated at this point that that our existence is almost infinitely improbable uh, the the you know the unit the fine tuning problem of uh, of the universe that it had to be created just yeah. so for us to exist 
the origin of life, the more you study it, the harder it is to uh, imagine how it how it started on Earth 3.5 billion years ago, and then the emergence of us uh, from um, you know organisms that started as algae and bacteria uh, is it, all just so improbable. There's this enormous randomness and con- contingency built into things, and yet here we are. So um, I, I think that. It's it's a miracle that we exist. If you you know you define a miracle as as an infinitely improbable event that somehow happens, then I'd say uh, our existence is a mir- is a miracle, and in that sense, I think that science is profoundly compatible with our our spiritual intuitions. That there must be some reason for us to be here, uh, and to be aware of our existence, and and determined to figure out why we're here. We don't know what that reason is, but that doesn't mean that there, that there isn't one. No, I think that is enough to start the Church of Organism right there. <laughs> and speaking of which, as we, uh, thank you for that note of conciliation, as we uh, sign off with the promise to maybe uh, have a future conversation about all this stuff, your Twitter handle is Organism. Mm-hmm. My Twitter handle is Robert Ryder, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. What else do you want to plug? I put out the non-zero newsletter. You can Google that and uh, sign up. It's free. Um, oh, just by, uh, you know, you already made the plug, my book, Mind Body Problems, with an S, right. .com, free online. And I'm always looking for feedback, which I post at the end of the book, and I've gotten lots of uh, great comments so far, and I welcome more. And if people go to meaningoflife.tv, they will see that there is a series of conversations you had called Mind Body Problems. They can click on it. Um, there's a podcast feed, in fact, with all of those conversations, uh, m- many of which certainly, uh, maybe not all of which, but, but some of which are with the people that you wrote about in the book, right? Are any of them not about the people you wrote about? Yeah, I had I've talked to some people like Jeffrey Kripal, and I've talked to uh, you know your your colleague uh, Nikita Petrov. I recently right, talked to right. Frederick Cruz. None of them were in my book. Okay, those uh, yeah. are in the those are in the feed. The, the Frederick Cruz thing is great. He's a fascinating he's, he he's a fascinating case. And there's a kind of po- well, just quickly, it as may, maybe postmodernists would argue, his history shows you just how important it is when you've got like an argument you're making just like political and social forces are in whether it is or is not accepted. And, and um, he's of course a, a well-known uh, critic of Freud, but it's a fa- that's a great, uh, that's a great conversation. Yeah. He's a great person. I, that was, that was fun for me to talk to him. So we should go, but thanks again, uh, John, uh, for acknowledging the many, many d- deficiencies in your views. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Bobble. I'll, I'll let you have the last word. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I kid. Okay. I know. Thanks. I I didn't take it seriously. Okay. (laughs) All right. See ya. Bye. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.